Hey, podcast family, Jason Miller here. Over the past couple of years, this podcast has made its way into the lives of a growing digital community that covers all 50 states and places beyond the U.S. And here in South Bend, we are humbled knowing that you take the time to listen. It's December, and we wanted to let you know that you can support the podcast with year-end giving by going to southbendcitychurch.com give. If you do that, you'll see a menu that lets you select general Christmas 2019 or podcast. And if you select podcast, that'll just help us have some context for your support. Regardless, this Advent season, know that it's our privilege to serve you with this podcast, that we're cheering for you, and that we count you as part of the family. Grace and peace, friends. So today begins Advent, uh, which is a, a season that the church has practiced for quite some time. Christians all around the world of different stripes and different ways of being together have often turned uh, to seasons like this. Uh, in fact, there's an early reference to fasting before Christmas that goes back to the late 300s uh, AD. So this, this goes back quite a ways in the history of the church in some form or another. Some of the practices you're familiar with, uh, if you're familiar with Advent, uh, go uh, to perhaps more recent times, like the medieval ages. Uh, but we have this chance to trust the wisdom of the church, which has been followers of Jesus all around the world, who say that even the way that we mark time ought to be, ought to be different, ought, ought to help us live by different rhythms and different convictions than the currents and the waters that are all around us sometimes. And so we turn to Advent, a season of waiting. But if we're gonna talk about waiting, I wanna observe, as we have before, that there are different ways of waiting and not all of them are created equal. There are ways of waiting and hoping that are actually toxic, that can destroy us, and there are ways of waiting and hoping that can be part of how God is saving us, how God is working in us in the world. Uh, I've shared this story when we taught Revelation recently, but I wanna come back to it, because for me it frames this so helpfully. It's a story from a book called Good to Great by a guy named Jim Collins, and in this business leadership book, there's a surprising deep lesson about means of waiting and the good and the bad and how we wait. Collins tells the story of a guy named Jim Stockdale. Jim uh, spent eight years at the Hanoi Hilton during Vietnam. Uh, because he was senior uh, in his rank, he was tortured something like 20 times while he was there. And he got out and he's been known as a, a person and a story of endurance, of grit, of perseverance. And so Collins wanted to tap into his insights about how it is that a person endures something so difficult. And so Collins goes to him and, and he simply asks him, like, how did you get through? This is Stockdale in the picture here. Uh, after he got out, you can see he's pretty highly decorated there. And in response to, to Collins' question, he, he, he responds, the way that I got through this is I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. So Colin says, okay, that's, that's interesting. So the way that you got through it is you never lost faith in the end of this thing, right? And then Collins asked, well, then who are the people who didn't make it? Is there anything about the way they behaved or the way they worked through that experience that predicted that they wouldn't survive this difficulty? And he says, uh, that's easy. The optimists, they're the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go, and then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come, and Easter would go, and then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they died of a broken heart. Now, maybe you're a little perplexed. I'm a little perplexed reading this because it, he begins by sort of saying, you know, I never lost faith. I never lost hope, which sounds like optimism. But then he says the optimists are the ones who didn't make it. And then Jim asks for a clarification, and he offers this. 
This is an important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. I put that in front of us because I don't know if there's a better way of describing what Advent is about. It's a season of hoping and waiting, but it's also a season of brutal confrontation with the way things are. Now, some, some in the room uh, perhaps are uh, liturgically literate, and by that I mean maybe you've been a part of churches in the past that practiced some of the rhythms of liturgy or the, the Christian year, things like Advent, right? And if you're liturgically literate, you might be frustrated or concerned right now because we have four Advent candles in the center of our gathering and they're all lit. Was anybody thinking that? So, some were, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not, so, you're not supposed to begin Advent with all the candles lit. Don't worry, we know what we're doing. I can't always say that, but right now I can, okay? Yeah, they're not always lit, but I actually thought we should start this way rather than with the candles unlit, with them lit, because I was watching TV this week. And I was watching the commercials, the stories that were being told through the screen about the moment that we were living in, and as the holiday season turns, what I sensed is, uh, like, as a society, as a human community, we, we have this desire in this season, as the light actually gets darker in the Northern Hemisphere, we have this desire to say that all is well and all is light and all is merry and all is full and we have the things that we want and, or we can buy the things that we want. And there's a lot of sentimentality baked into the way that this season is adorned in the world around us, right? And I, I get it, by the way. And I, it's not a bad thing to adorn with joy or with festivities. I'm not criticizing any of that. But like, I just was like feeling like, man, there's like this group delusion going on in the moment that we're living in as the holidays come, which is that like our, our TV, our, our stories, our messages, our songs are saturated with a sense of fullness and light and merry. And I was watching the TV with all of these stories being told through commercials of, of fullness and light and merriment. And I started to feel like the kid when the emperor is walking down the street. You guys know the story from Hans Christian Andersen? It's a, it's a profoundly wise little tale that he tells of the emperor in his new clothes, where uh, these merchants come and speak to the emperor, and they're really con men. They're playing a game with him. And they know that he's a man of great ego. He wants to be seen as noble. And so they say, we have crafted this very special garment woven of these special threads. And the only people who can see it are people of extraordinary wisdom and insight and gravitas, and him wanting to be known as a man of insight and wisdom and gravitas, he pretends to see a garment when there is none, right? And they pretend to wrap it around him, and he pretends to love how he looks in it, and he decides he will parade himself through the city streets wearing his new clothes, which in fact are not clothes at all. He's buck naked, right? And of course, the townspeople, the village, like the people who are under this king, they also want to be thought of as wise and insightful and all this, and they've heard that it's only the wise and the best who can see the garment, so they all are declaring with greatness how great the emperor's new clothes are as he walks naked down the streets, right? And there's this willful group delusion happening, and then there's a one kid who just speaks up and says, he's naked! <laughs> I felt a little bit like that watching um, this sort of saccharine sentimental packaging of how merry and bright everything is. By the way, I think there are pockets of light 
and good. I think the story we are living in is fundamentally good. I think God loves this world and there's a lot of joy within it. But, but, there's also plenty of darkness and difficulty in the world. And I just wanted to observe that if we, if we treated these candles the way that a lot of our community, like as a humanity, is, is working right now, we would light all of them right away. And just say, like, isn't everything great? And we would eat some sugar, and we would try to numb ourselves from some of the dark and difficult things that are real in the world that we live in right now. But in fact, things are dark and difficult in all sorts of ways, right? Like the world at large, there are days when it feels like it's burning. I mean, we have um, nuclear capacities for war among the nations and saber rattling that happens in our geopolitics. And uh, just a few generations ago, we came to terms as a human race with our own capacity to destroy everything with the things that we create. It's not just our weapons of war though, right? Uh, there's a whole new awakening happening among many that climate change is, is another way of discovering that we are capable of destroying the very planet that we are living in. And the world is actually literally burning right now in places where we desperately need the ecological resources that are there to sustain this beautiful garden that we live in, but they're burning. So like at the global level, things can be a little bit dark. And then you have our politics. <laughs> And I'm not like anti-politics. Uh, I think there are a lot of good people trying to do their best in our politics, and yet it just seems that uh, as the world feels more threatened than it has in a long time, whether it's war or economics or climate change, as the world seems more threatened than it has, at least to me, in a long time, we also seem less equipped than we have been in a long time to make progress, to bring our best to the table, to make things better. I just keep turning my attention to the way that we are trying to work things out as a society and it doesn't always feel that great. Uh, in our city, uh, there's a lot of challenging things. South Bend experiences a rate of poverty uh, far greater than the average in our country. South Bend experiences rates of violence far greater than the average in our country. This isn't just something out there, other people, other places. This is us, this is our community. This is what we carry and walk through together here. And while I love this city and find it full of light, I also find uh, that there are days when I go to bed really weary and heavy hearted for the, the very community that we are a part of and participate in. We have needs that are going unmet and problems that we're having a hard time solving like right here in South Bend. And perhaps the way that many of us feel it most isn't at the level of the global or the political or the, the local, but it's at the very personal. Uh, the battles that we are fighting personally, to hold on to our own well-being, to care for each other. Uh, the suicide rate grows at an alarming pace right now. Like if you look at the statistics, it, it, it's growing. We, we are literally destroying ourselves. Mental health is a, is a challenge for so many of us. I'm sure that's been a challenge in my life, my teammates' lives, and so many in this church. Uh, we have um, members in this community, beloved brothers and sisters, who are fighting addiction battles, and it's an uphill climb. Uh, just this week, I got a message from a, 
a family who's a member of this family who asked me to pray for them uh, as they uh, finally got somebody they love into rehab after a long, long fight to get them there. There's just all these personal battles that, that we are in fact fighting. And I don't mean this to be gloom and doom and dismay, but I'm just here to say that Advent is a season where we stand apart from the group delusion. Not all is merry and bright. Not all is joyful and good. Not all is fine. Everything is not okay. And Advent is a season for us to, to bravely and tenderly carry that together, hold that together, and then to look for how God might enter into that, but not to look for God by avoiding it, right? This Advent season of, of waiting for us, we, we mean to be faithful to what Stockdale was saying, which is while we're, we will not lose faith that God will give God's self to us and that God will take the story in the right direction, we will also not shy away from naming what is difficult and hard and confronting the brutal realities that we are living in right now. And that moral arc of the universe that some speak of, that is long but that it points toward good, it is long. <laughs> and it moves so slowly sometimes and it can feel like two steps forward and one step back. And the advance of God's kingdom can seem as frail as the light of a single candle that can be snuffed out with the faintest wind that comes. And this is where the seeds of Advent are planted. This is how we begin our waiting. Now the good news is uh, we've been here before. And by we, I mean the human race. We've been here before. If you wake up someday and what you feel is, gosh, it is dark out there. Or you feel like, gosh, it's dark in here. If you are struggling to find your way toward hoping for something better, the good news is we have been here before and we have learned some things. One of the records of having been there before comes from the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures, from voices like that of Isaiah, who speak of what it is like to feel the warring energies around us, but to continue to hope. So uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time meditating and reflecting on the, on the words from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, this is, again, what the church around the world is looking at right now. Isaiah is in the, the lectionary text for Advent this year. And we've already had the text read to us, but today I just want to um, offer like a brief meditation or reflection on the hoping and the waiting that Isaiah does in the passage that we've read and see if it might call us into a certain kind of waiting and hoping uh, this Advent season. So let me take you back into the text for a moment and call this out. Actually, sorry, before I take you into that, a couple of observations about the prophet Isaiah, this, uh, this jewel in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet uh, uh, who the original seems to be speaking prior to the exile of the Israelites before they're carried away into Babylon. Um, most modern scholars discern that the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are written by Isaiah, and then it seems that chapters 40 through 55 are written possibly by a, a later generation prophet speaking in the time of exile. And then uh, the latter portion of the book seems to be written post-exile as they try to kind of rebuild their lives, which, by the way, is like a remarkable gift in and of itself, right? Because pre-exile is sort of the warning that comes of a looming threat that you are capable of destroying yourself, right? And exile is the experience of facing the consequences of what we have done. And post-exile is the consequence of having been delivered out of that and being given a new chance to rebuild and put things back together. And we have in one book 
That entire journey, spoken of prophetically, poetically, theologically, giving us insight to the deep inner experience of a community or of a person who goes through that movement, and everybody goes through that movement. So it's a real gift that we have this book. Some of the early church fathers uh, have said that um, Isaiah in the Old Testament is the first apostle and evangelist of the gospel. Uh, One famous uh, old uh, church father named Augustine was told by his mentor that the first book of the Bible that he should read is Isaiah that this is the first place that you should turn to to start understanding the good news that God is offering the world. So there's a lot going on here. But the other important thing about Isaiah, and this may seem a little conceptual, but hang with me, okay? Isaiah represents a turning point in the operative consciousness of the Hebrew Scriptures. What I mean by that is that if you actually work through the texts of the Old Testament, through the Hebrew Scriptures, if you work through them in the order of when they, they were actually brought together, when they were written and compiled, you discover there's a trajectory that happens. And in the early texts, the Hebrew people, like everybody then, assume basically that there are many little tribal gods and deities, and we have a tribal god or deity, his name is Yahweh, and there are other tribal gods and deities. Early on, there's sort of the idea that, but our God's better than your God. Like, my dad could beat up your dad, right? For all the sort of ancient tribal playground fights that are happening, okay? So you have, we, have, we have different gods, but our God is better than the other gods. But that still adds up to a divided world, doesn't it? If I have my God and you have yours and this territory has its God and that ter- territory has its, we have a divided world. But something starts happening in the consciousness of the Hebrew people. And Isaiah seems to be the location of the turning point where this awakening occurs. And they, they realize like, it's not that some people come from some gods and some places are governed by certain energies and other people are coming from other gods governed by other energies, but that all of this, the entire created order, every nation, every person, it all comes from one source, one being, one God. That, that seems to be the turning point that's happening here. And one of the things that you'll see in Isaiah is they begin to think about justice and peace and violence in a way that comports with the idea that all of this comes from one source, from one place. And Isaiah 2, the place that we read today, is one of the places that reflects all of that. So hang with me as we look at the text. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills, and all the nations shall stream to it. This is an image, of course, of the mount in Jerusalem where the temple resides, which is their understanding of of the sort of headquarters of God, right? This is where the divine energy is at its most potent. This is where God has offered to be with God's people. And many of the people shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. Hang there for a minute. He shall judge between the nations and arbitrate for many peoples. Well, if there are many gods and each people has their own god, it doesn't make sense at all that this god should arbitrate between the nations. But something has shifted in the awareness of these people that the same god that has given them life and energy is the god that has given everyone life and energy. So so God is actually sort of appropriately appointed to adjudicate between the nations. Now that's a big deal if you think about it for the Israelites who experience a a deep sense of privilege as God's chosen people, as God's favored ones, right? But in this moment, 
They're actually setting themselves up as peers among the nations, and God's gonna judge them alongside everyone else. They're plaintiffs in a court just like everyone else, and then there's a judge that's above and beyond all of that, that's greater than all of that, that's gonna adjudicate these things, right? Uh, In the ancient idea, this is something like a a big regional king would would adjudicate between petty kingdoms within his region. The, The smaller, less powerful kings would come to the big king, and say that, that tribe, that clan, they did something to my tribe or my clan, and the big powerful king would adjudicate these things. That's the actual image going on here. And then we have this, these nations, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So what's happened here the Israelites are slowly waking up to the idea that all of this comes from one source, one God, that even our enemies are given their life from the same God who gives us life. They imagine that all this violence that keeps tearing us apart will be brought to some kind of judgment where people and human communities will all find themselves on level ground before this God and this God will judge fairly, and nobody gets to claim any privilege, but everybody finds themselves before this God who will adjudicate fairly. And the consequence of this will be that swords are beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, which is to say that the instruments of violence with which we wage war against one another and ourselves, these instruments will be transformed into instruments of peace and flourishing. And then there's this beckoning call from the prophet, O house of Jacob. In other words, hey, my people, at least the ones who are listening to me, at least my family, let's walk in the light of the Lord. Let's walk in light of this promise. That the God who has given life to everyone will adjudicate fairly. There'll be no privilege. There'll be no special status there, but there'll be justice there. And then we could discover that the instruments of violence have been transformed into instruments of peace. And we're being invited to walk in in the light of that promise, walk in the way of that promise. Today, I wanna suggest that the brutal confrontation with reality that we should have is to ask ourselves, what are the instruments of war or violence that we have wielded, and what should we do with them? What are the instruments of war or violence or destruction or division that we have wielded, and what should we do with them that they might be transformed into instruments of peace and flourishing. Because if you are awake and aware that everyone has come from the same God, from the same source, that all of humanity finds itself on equal footing before that gaze of justice and kindness, if if you discover that, then you might want to look at the things that we have used to divide us and destroy us and see if they could be transformed into instruments of peace and flourishing. Brutal confrontation. What have we used for violence or destruction? And the hopeful question is, how might it be transformed? Now, um, I've been thinking about this this week as I've meditated on on this passage. By the way, uh, Swords into Plowshares, one of the places where that scripture features in public is on a massive wall across the street from the United Nations headquarters in New York. Swords into Plowshares, I've been meditating on what would it mean in my life and in the world that I have any influence over or any touch with for instruments of violence to be made into instruments of peace. Uh, Violence can seem like a category removed from a lot of us because maybe we don't feel like we've had our hands bloodied by actual violence, although some of us have. Uh, 
But surely if we think for a moment, we can discover there are things that we have used to divide and destroy and to hurt. For some of us, it's, it's words. Some of us use words violently. We use them in our homes and with our employees, with our friends, with our enemies. We've used them on the internet. And I, I really mean it. I mean, I, I think 100 years from now, many books will be written about what was destroyed in our midst when we discovered that behind a screen we could speak to each other in ways that we would never speak to each other in person, right? Do some of us need to think about what our words have done to create violence in the world, to hurt in the world? Do we need to think of speaking differently? Some of us have used whatever power we have in violent or hurtful ways. We've thrown our weight around in ways that have brought others down, and it's not good. We've been complicit in systems or structures that destroy some people while protecting others, and it can be a little hard to confront that. Maybe you didn't actively choose that. Maybe you didn't make a decision to participate in that, but some of us have just been a part of things that have hurt other people, that have destroyed other people. And we might need to meditate for a moment on what our power has done in the world. Like, do, do you have any power at all? Do you have a dollar in your bank account? Do you have anybody who listens to you, any influence? Can you sway your workplace or your organization? Is your body a source of power that you're able to use in the world? And has your power ever contributed to the suffering of another person? Has it ever created a world that was a little bit um, less likely to create the flourishing of another person? And if so, should we hear that called out in a text that speaks of the God who has given life to everyone and so who meets everyone on equal ground, who judges equally and fairly and calls us to brutally confront the ways that we have torn apart this world? Uh, we could go on. But the reflection, I suppose, is like, what has been a tool for violence in your life and how might it be transformed? I keep this um, strange Christmas ornament. It's the only Christmas ornament that I own, which I'm really happy about. Uh, I've been keeping this with me uh, for several years. Um, I know it's a little bit small, so I'll kind of carry it around here so you can see it. I got this ornament in a, something like a war zone a couple years ago in another place in the world. It's a place where everywhere you look, you see uh, sniper towers and uh, walls and barbed wire. And where everywhere you go, there are painful and legitimate stories of suffering. And while we were there in that difficult place, uh, we were at a community center where children are served. And the community center serves one of the two factions in this conflict. And the factions are ethnic and political and religious. And so the community center, uh, not by discrimination, but simply by location, serves uh, one of the factions in this conflict because the factions are divided by walls in this place. And we were there seeing how they work with children and the crafts and arts that they do. And in a lot of ways, you would have thought that you were maybe at like a preschool in South Bend. Um, seeing these beautiful smiling children and discovering ways that they're working for the benefit of these kids. But then uh, they began to tell stories of the violence that they've experienced in the midst of this conflict. And then they showed us a video. And the video is security camera footage of the playground at the community center where the kids play. And at first you think, uh, oh, that's, that's sweet. I mean, it's 
kind of grainy and black and white, so it's not very sentimental, but it's nice to see kids playing on a playground. And then um, these objects enter the screen from above. You can't quite tell what they are at first. Uh, they, they're not large, but these things start raining down on the playground. And then as they hit the ground, uh, something like gas emits from them. And what you realize is they're tear gas canisters. They're just blanketing this playground with 10-year-old kids playing on it. And you discover that the other faction in this conflict um, was doing this as an act of uh, repri reprisal against an act of violence where another kid had thrown stones at their people, and so they decided they would blanket a uh, playground with tear gas canisters. And that was one of those moments where I just thought, I don't know if I can handle this brutal confrontation with reality. I'm like, I could use some Netflix and a beer right now. To be honest, that's what I'm like, you know what I mean? Because like when it gets really bad or really hard out there, you just want to ignore it, don't you? Like you just want to turn it off and shut it down. Want to go watch some sappy sentimental Christmas movies or something and tell myself everything's okay, but it's not. That was one of those moments where I just thought like, I, I don't know if I want to be awake. I don't know if I want to see all this. Well, later uh, on this same trip, we spent time with people who do um, unbelievably beautiful, hopeful things for peace. They, uh, they bridge divides and they quite literally reach across that wall that divides these factions and they look for common ground. And many of these people, if you ask them why they do that, they'll tell you, uh, well, we're followers of Jesus. It's what you do, right? Oh, yeah, shoot. <laughs> they say, um, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, and he blesses the peacemakers, and so we have applied ourselves to learning the ways of peace in the world. So we learn from experts in conflict transformation, and we use our best creative energies, and we do brave things. Try to put things back together a little bit here where there are so many weapons dividing us. And then they uh, show you that as a little symbol to inspire themselves and to inspire others, they create these Christmas ornaments, uh, which is actually made out of a spent tear gas canister. <laughs> they quite literally are beating the weapons of war into instruments of peace with this thing that we use to adorn our trees when we celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. And the reason that's the only Christmas ornament that I have is, um, well, first of all, I'm not much for decorations. <laughs> but the other reason is uh, I, I, I don't want to wrap my house in the month of December with things that um, just sentimentalize the season that we're living in or make it easier to ignore what is aching in the world. I also don't think this is a season to just be full of despair and gloom and uh, sad and hard things. This is a season for that thing that Stockdale said, which is to confront the brutal facts of our moment while not giving up hope that things will be different in the end. And Advent is for people who believe that what God has revealed in Jesus is that God hasn't given up on taking this story toward its good and beautiful end, but we don't get there by ignoring it or forgetting about it. We get there perhaps by waking up to the fact that every human sister or brother comes from that same God. Their life is given by that same God. There's no privilege or favoritism in this God, but we all are going to find ourselves in some way on equal footing before this God who will adjudicate between the nations and who will say to us, the violence that you have done was never okay. But then we'll see these instruments of violence transformed into instruments of peace. 
And we could begin asking ourselves, even now, if there's ways that our own tools of violence could be transformed into something for peace or flourishing in the world today. And so I wonder, as the prophet promises, and as my little Christmas ornament reminds us, is there anything you could do with whatever you have been using for violence or whatever been, has been used for violence against you? Is there anything you could do with it? Could you transform it? Could you subvert it? Could you get your hands on it and take what was meant for evil and turn it to good? And would that be a profound act of waiting and hoping this Advent season? If you think to yourself, I know what has been used for violence in my life. I'm not lost on that. Maybe you know how you have hurt others or you know how you have been hurt or you see the way that the world is burning and it's painfully evident that some things are being used to destroy us. Like maybe you're clear on that part of it, but maybe you can't imagine how those instruments of violence or war could ever be transformed into anything of peace. Well, if that's you, I would suggest that if you're looking for a worthwhile inspiration or a teacher on the matter, if you're looking for a resource or a guide for how it is that things of violence and war can be turned into things of peace, I would suggest that Jesus is a pretty worthwhile candidate because we call him Prince of Peace and we celebrate his kingdom of peace, but at the center of his story is his body flung on a cross, which is a heinous instrument of violence. A cross is the result of the ingenuity of the most powerful empire at its time asking itself, what's the worst that we can do to a body? What's the worst that we can do to a community to terrorize it with a body to say, don't avoid us, don't dis disobey us, don't push back against us. What's the worst that we could do to haunt people with our capacity to destroy them? And they invent a cross. And Jesus finds his body flung against a cross which is a brutal confrontation with the violent moment of reality that he was living in. And that society's capacity to war against itself and against God. He finds himself with his body flung up against that instrument of war. And yet uh, many communities for a couple thousand years have held that cross in the center of their gatherings or hung it on a wall and celebrated the peace that God brings, the reconciling power of God in the world. I don't know about you, but to me that seems like one heck of a capacity to turn an instrument of violence into an instrument of peace. People have put crosses on hospitals because those hospitals were founded by people compelled by the way of Jesus to bring healing, right? People go into wartime places to bring peace and they create logos out of crosses because there's something about what that has meant to them and their encounter with God in that story that has compelled them to do the work of peace, right? I'm a pastor and I, I wear a cross around my neck, not as a ornamentation, but because of a profound experience of peace that it brought me in a moment in my life when I was desperate for some kind of light to break into some darkness. If Jesus can turn a cross, one of the most heinous instruments of violence ever invented with the sick and twisted ingenuity of a violent empire, if he can turn that into a symbol of peace that has reverberated in the world for 2,000 years, I suspect he's capable of working with you of inspiring you, of teaching you how it is that you might get your hands on the weapons of violence in your life and turn them toward instruments of flourishing for the world. And to me, optimism is a sort of ungrounded commitment to believing things that have no evidence. <laughs> but hope is what you do, what you feel, what you are a part of when you actually see that things are changing, even even when the, the verdict is out on all of this, 
Hope to me doesn't come uh, when you just decide to will yourself toward better thoughts. Hope to me came when I got my hands on this tear gas canister turned into a Christmas ornament and heard the story of the people who were actually making peace in the middle of entrenched and violent conflict. Hope comes to people who start doing the things that you do when you believe that this isn't all there is to the story. Hope is what comes to people who've spent enough time with that moment with Jesus on the cross that they've discovered that God is in fact capable of turning our absolute darkest, most heinous impulses and transforming them into good. And hope is for people in Advent who uh, are brutally confronting our reality but are convinced that it's not the end. We, uh, each week we'll light a candle for the Advent season and so the light will slowly grow not as a distraction from how hard things are, but as we confront how hard things are. And this will slowly light the way to Christmas for us, where we celebrate the mystery of God in the world. God in the midst of our darkness, God in the midst of our violence, God in the world. God who teaches us how to transform our very worst into something for the good. We'll, um, we'll find different ways to mark the lighting of these candles, but today I'm turning to uh, an old prayer that many churches will pray today as the candle is lit. I've modified it ever so slightly because we're South and City Church and that's what we do. Uh, but if you would, um, simply make these words out of prayer together as I light this candle and then the band will sort of lead us in a reflection through a song. But we say now together, we light this candle as a sign of the coming light of Christ. May we prepare ourselves for the days when nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nations, neither shall they learn war anymore. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You are speaking truth to power. You are laying down our swords, replanting every vineyard Till a brand new wine is poured, your peace will make us one. I've seen you in our home fires burning with the quiet light.
your bosom that is still transfiguring, dismantling our empires till each one of us is free. Your peace will make us one. So I can't say glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, oh glory, glory, hallelujah, So this Advent season, may we be brave enough to confront things as they are. May we hope for what they will be. And may we find our lives, our hands, our bodies, our experiences, the places where things are being transformed, not just for us, but for the world. May we learn from Jesus how it is that the worst, darkest, most difficult things can be turned for light and life. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.